Well, this, uh, this year, um, at the beginning of this year, uh, Maddox and I, my son and I, we've, we've embarked on the journey through J.R.R. Tolkien's epic book, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, so our goal, as best as we can, uh, as many nights during the week as we can, though we haven't had the best of start yet, but our goal is, is we want to read through the story together. Uh, and our hope is that we can get through the, much of the story, if not all of the story, by the end of this year. That's the goal we've set out before us, to, to read just a little bit each, each time we meet at night. Um, now, I'm assuming, uh, even if you haven't read the, the book yourself, you know at least a little bit about the premise of the story. It's really a story, boil it down, between good versus evil. Uh, but it's also the story of kind of an unlikely hero, it's a little hobbit named, uh, named Frodo. Uh, so in the prologue of the book, that's where we are right now. We're, we're reading of just kind of characters. And so we've, we're reading right now of, of the hobbits and who they are and, and what makes them who they are and their character, things like that. Uh, and there's nothing about a hobbit that's appealing, right? They're small creatures. Uh, they like to live in their own communities, kind of away from others. Uh, they are not primarily uh, adventurous. Uh, they generally like to keep to themselves in the peace and comfort of their homes and then their community. And yet, uh, as the story unfolds, it's, it's Frodo, one of the hobbits, who embarks on this epic journey, who faces adventure after adventure, battle after battle, risking his own life to save the day from evil, uh, which was seeking to destroy and enslave anything and every one. Now, what's fascinating about the story as we're going to get through it is just the unlikeliness of the hero. Uh, as we're wrapping up Mark chapter 12 this morning, uh, this chapter here ends with a peculiar story of a, of a poor widow who's putting in a, a, a couple small coins that barely equates to even a single penny into the, the offering box. Now, why does Mark include that story at the end of this chapter? Why does he include this story in his gospel? Why does Jesus here make such a kind of a big deal over what this, this woman had done. She was one who was unnoticed, who no one really even gave her a, a, a passing glance. And yet Jesus kind of elevates her actions and what she has done. Now, I'm not going to say, and not, we're not getting to where the widow is the hero of the story. Obviously, Jesus is the hero of the story. But as we get to it, what I do want us to see is that what Mark is, is seeing and what Jesus is seeing in this unlikely character something that is deserving of being pointed out as what it really actually means to follow Christ, which is what Mark's gospel has been leading us to. What does it truly mean to follow Jesus? And her life, as we'll get to it at the end this morning, is going to be contrasted against the, the lives of these religious leaders that Jesus has been sparring with throughout the entire chapter so far. And in the end, Jesus is going to point to this, this unlikely person, this unlikely character, this, this person who no one really ever looks at. And it's going to point to her, a, a, a woman, again, who nobody notices in the temple and say, this is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to follow me. This is true devotion. And it's going to be seen in the most unlikely person. Now, what we're going to have to wrestle through this morning and, and what we're going to have to come to grips with is this understanding that what we often equate godliness with is not actually what Jesus is after in us. And that the things that we often want to hold tightly to are going to be the very things that Jesus is coming after in us. That's going to be the wrestle 
this morning, which means to truly follow the one true Christ, to truly be a, a disciple of Jesus, is going to be a work of the Holy Spirit within us who draws us to him, who empowers us to, to let go of the things of this world that we want to hold on to so tightly. At the same time, we're going to need the Spirit of God to illuminate God's word to us which clearly reveals to us this is who Jesus is. This then is what it means to follow Jesus, the the true Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God made flesh. This is who he is. This is what it means to follow him. We're going to need the Spirit of God to do that work within us, to see him for who he rightly is, not who we want him to be or make him out to be. So it fits our agenda, fits um, our comfort level. It's no, here's who he is. And that's going to press against us. It's going to push us. It's going to challenge us. But it's there only when we submit to the true Christ where we find joy. See, this is really going to be a pivotal moment here in Mark's gospel where we really need to pause and examine our lives to see Are we, am I, am I actually truly following the one true Christ and not on my terms, not on our terms, but on his? And so with that being said, let's pause for a moment this morning. Let's ask God to do what only he can do. God, we come to you this morning at a, as I just said, a, a pivotal moment in Mark's gospel. One in which, again, has been leading up to this, this moment even here of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus over and over again throughout the last several chapters has been, uh, has been calling his disciples and, and, and teaching them and showing them this is what it means. You've got to die to yourself if you want to follow me. You've, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. And yet now we see here a, a, an example in this, this poor widow of, of actually what it looks like. And so, God, this is going to rub against the grain of our flesh because we, we want to hold tight to the things that, that bring us comfort, that bring us rest, that bring us peace. But yet we want to we let go of those things because we can find a greater rest, a greater peace, an eternal hope and joy in you. And so, Father, may your spirit do the work that only he can do as we look to your word to be shaped and changed by it. For your glory, our joy, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Question for us this morning. Who is Jesus, and what does it mean to follow him? Okay, who is Jesus, and what does it mean to follow him? If I were to boil today's text down to a single question, that's what it is. Who is Jesus, and what's it mean to follow him? It's a simple question with a, a fairly uh, a straightforward answer. That is, uh, apart from God's grace and spirit, though, it's impossible to live. This, which is why we had to pause it for a moment to say, God, you're going to have to do this work. Because we can read it, we can maybe intellectually understand it, but to actually believe this and do it is something that we do not have the strength to do. You see, man-centered religion is, is easy to live out in the flesh. But, but Jesus isn't after man-centered religion. In fact, he calls it out and torches it ferociously. Uh, following Jesus, as Jesus calls us to follow him, is only possible by God's grace and his power. And we're going to see that 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 reality come to life here in Mark 12. And so let's, let's dive in, right? So this, this unit of Scripture here is really divided up really nicely for us, right? Three easy, simple sections. See, the first section we're going to look at this morning is in verses 35 through 37. And, and that section is going to call us to recognize the one true king, right? Who is Jesus? 
The second section we're going to see in verses 38 through 40, and that's going to call us to recognize then false uh, man-centered religion. Let's identify the opposite or recognize the opposite of what Jesus has called us to. And then we'll wrap up this morning in the final section found in verses 41 through 44 with this story of the poor widow. And it's going to be here that we're going to be called to recognize as what James would say in his letter, pure and undefiled religion. So the text here this morning is, is actually moving us in, in this trajectory of the story of this poor widow, which then is, explains what it, what it actually means to follow the one true Christ who's identified in verses 35 through 37. But to get there, we have to first identify and recognize Jesus as the Christ, one who is worthy of our devotion and, and worthy of us following, giving up all of our life, right? As we saw even last week, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, right? To follow him, to see him as King of kings, Lord of lords. So we have to begin there. So, so all religion, all religion in life, all beliefs in, in, in humanity center around something or someone. And so what, what that means is, is that your life revolves around something or someone. So, so even if you're here this morning with us and, and you would say, not me though, like I'm not, I'm not religious. In fact, I'm the opposite of that. Like I am anti-religion. Right? I would still push and argue to you that there is something or someone, there is a central belief in your life, there's something that still drives your life. There's still something in your life that you're centering around that affects and drives your decision making. It, it drives and affects your thought process. It drives and forms and shapes who you are and how you live. And so Jesus is, is, is after, after spending a significant amount of time in the temple, as we've seen through chapter 12, him sparring with these religious leaders. He's answering all of their questions. That's been all of chapter 12. He's now turning, he's turning the tables on them a little bit, and he's saying, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. And it's going to cause them with this question to either accept him and see him for who he actually is as king, as Christ as the Messiah, as, as Lord, and therefore then center their lives around him, or it's going to cause them to reject him and to reveal they're not actually interested in submitting to God, but they're actually instead, they want to center their life. Their belief system is really centering around themselves, their man-made, man-centered religion, and that's what Jesus is going to reveal in these religious leaders here. So in verse 35, we see this, this kind of this last, this final interaction that Jesus has with these religious leaders before he's about to be arrested and executed on the cross. Uh, in, in a way, it's probably to some degree a final call, a final call to these religious leaders to repent. Repent, you, you have this wrong. And, and turn to him as Lord, but as we heard read, they, they will reject him. And so Jesus, in this final engagement with the scribes, he poses this question that we see in verse 35, 36, 37. Let me read it again. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So here's the question, how is he his son? So Jesus here is quoting Psalm 110. Uh, psalm 110 is a psalm of, of David, a psalm that David wrote. So Psalm 110, verse 1 says this, and we just heard Jesus quote it, but says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Now, if we're gonna if we're gonna move toward the climax of this this scriptural unit, which is which is found in the story of the poor widow centering her life around the supremacy of God, then we first need to recognize the one true king, which is what Jesus is trying to draw them out to. Who is the one true king? Who is the Messiah? Which is what Jesus is attempting to get these religious leaders to see. He's, getting, he's, he's attempting to get the, the crowd that's listening to him to, to see this, see him for who he is and what Scripture affirms him to be and testifies the Messiah to be. So Jesus is speaking here in the temple grounds to the, to the Jewish people and to the Jewish religious leaders who all believe, they, they believed one central thing, and that was that they believed the Messiah was coming. Right? They all believed there was a Messiah that was coming and that this Messiah was coming from the line of David and that, that they believed that this Messiah who would come would, would make things right again within Israel. And, and so they believed that, that they thought this Messiah was going to come and, and to make things right within Israel again meant to overthrow Rome, right, which was oppressing them, and, and to then establish once again the Davidic throne, the Davidic kingdom, right? The one in which, which Israel would once again reign and, and rule, right? That's, that was their belief of what this Messiah was and would do. And so like I said, they believed, because the scriptures did speak of this, that this Messiah would come from the line of David. Therefore, this Messiah would be, as they would say, a, a son of David, right? So, so Jesus then is, is quoting Psalm 110, which was written by David, and, and asking them, well, how can this Messiah be David's son, like you say, come from the line? But at the same time, David looks to this messianic figure, looks ahead, so he's prophetically speaking of this Messiah, and he says that he's my Lord. He's my Lord. So, so look at Psalm 110 again, right? Says this, David says, the Lord Right? So this is referring to God, Yahweh, right? God the Father. David says, says to my Lord, right? My master, the one who's going to rule even over me, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Meaning David knew that this Messiah was going to be one who reigns and who conquers, but would come after him, but yet would still be David's Lord. So, so Jesus here in his interaction with these religious leaders and with this crowd isn't denying that the Messiah would come from David's line. We, we know Scripture is very clear that he would come from, from David. But what Jesus is doing is trying to get the religious leaders to see that this Messiah was not a, just a mere mortal. He, he wasn't just another David. He was the greater David. right? It's not a, just another mere mortal who's going to come and set up just another earthly kingdom to rule over earthly enemies who provides just some temporary political liberation, but that the Messiah that Scripture speaks of, if they would just open their eyes and see it, speaks of this Messiah with someone who's different, whose kingdom is not of this world, and whose mission is to conquer not Rome, but to conquer sin, and to conquer death, to conquer over evil that enslaves all of humanity. That, that the only way he could be both, so Jesus is saying, the, the only way that this Messiah could be both David's son, meaning from the line of David, but also David could refer to him as his Lord, is if this Messiah is also God's son. That there's something different about this Messiah that, that, that you're missing. Meaning this Messiah is both fully God and fully man. Right? Jesus is 
once again saying to these religious people, you're, you're centering your life around a misunderstood Messiah. You, you want an earthly ruler to just fix your problems. You're not looking globally. You're not looking eternally at what, what God is doing. You just want your problems fixed now. But I'm, he's saying, I'm not just an earthly ruler. I'm not just a, a human figure come to, to make your life more comfortable. Jesus here, in quoting Psalm 110, is saying, the Messiah, I'm a divine figure. I'm, I'm, I'm God's son. Come to, to conquer the enemies of the entire human race. Like, I've come to destroy the power of sin and death and evil for every race, every nation, every tribe, every language. He's saying, I'm the king, I'm the Lord of all people. So so in a way, he's saying to these these deeply religious leaders, you can't control or manipulate me, right? I'm beyond human comprehension, right? I mean, you can just see him saying, you've seen what I've done. You've seen my ministry, I've healed, I've cast out demons, I've raised people from the dead, I've calmed storms with my words. You heard what I've taught. You've tried to trip me up this week only to get, to get, get it handed to you with your tails between your legs and you leaving with your heads bowed. Like you can't, you can't corner me, right? You see who I am and, and, and you see the scriptures and they point to me and they affirm who I am. Now you need to recognize that I am the one true king. You need to recognize that I am the Christ, that I am David's Lord. Do you see Jesus for who he really is? It's a question for us here. Do you see Jesus for who he really is? Do do you recognize that he is the one true king? Now, I'm going to assume that that the, the vast majority of us in this room would intellectually uh, affirm that and, and agree with that. But as this text is going to unfold, we're going to see that it's more than just mere intellectual knowledge. It's, are we living that? Does our life reflect that Jesus is Lord, Master, Ruler, the one true Christ? The acknowledgement of, the, of that reality of who Jesus is is really simple to state. But again, I'll ask, does your life reflect that you believe this to be true? And so the question becomes, how do we how do we begin to identify whether or not I truly believe this? Again, one thing to say it, but, but okay, but is my life reflecting this? What, is my life reflecting that my life is centered around Christ as King, as Lord, or is my life really reflecting that, that I center my life around a man-centered religion, what, what I want? And, and the text as we continue through, through this actually helps us identify that in verses 38 through 40. And so follow along as as Jesus continues. He says, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. It's here that, that Jesus most likely probably turns to the large crowd that had, had been gathering around him in the, on the temple grounds. And, and most likely in front of these scribes, he, he points to them and says, beware of them. Beware of these guys right here. See, what Jesus now is calling us to do is recognize false man-centered religion. Man-centered religion, I know this is a, a shocking statement, but it centers around 
man, right? It, it's about us. It's about, it's about me, right? It's about what, what, what I can get, about what I can receive. It's about my status before others, my power and control that I have over others. Remember from the text that we went through last week in Mark's gospel, the scribe who comes to Jesus and asks, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Basically, what he was asking was, what's the minimum requirement that I have to do to get to heaven? What do I have to do to get to heaven? And whittle it down for me so it's achievable and a mountain that I can climb. Man-centered religion is always centered around what we can do. False religion is easy to spot because it's, it's man-centered. And Jesus, even in his, his warning to the crowd about the scribes, identifies five ways to, to, to see false religion, man-centered religion for what it is. Number one, false religion craves recognition. Craves recognition. He said to scribes, man, they love, they love to walk around in their long robes. Meaning that they loved to walk around wearing these full-length prayer shawls everywhere that they went so that people would recognize their devotion, their piety. Look how holy I am. Right? The, the scribes, he says, they're, they're not interested in pointing people to the, the beauty and the worth of God. L- love for God is not what motivates them and drives them to prayer, drives them for their, 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 their religious actions. It was about them. It wasn't love for God that motivated them, but it was a, they were driven by this desire to be noticed, to be recognized, and, and to be seen as better than everyone else morally. See, false religion craves recognition. We have to be noticed by others or we wither up and die. Number two, false religion uh, demands acknowledgement. It demands acknowledgement. Jesus goes on saying that the scribes, they, they liked greetings in the marketplaces, so, so man-centered religion wants to, they, they want others to acknowledge how important they are, right? They, they want others to acknowledge their significance, their importance, right? To greet them when they walk into a room, right? When they walk into a room, like in their minds, they want everyone to notice them. Wow, he's here, she's here, right? They, they want to be, they almost like this, want this, this hush, to come over the crowd because of their entrance into the room, right? Like, this is false religion. It demands acknowledgement. See me for who I am. See what I have done, right? Are you recognizing how good I am and how much better I am than everyone else? And they demand that people accept that and see that. Number three, false religion expects honor. It expects honor. The scribes, they wanted the best seats when they entered into the synagogue. They wanted the the best seats, the seats of honor when they went to feasts, right? They wanted to be seated next to the host so that everyone else at the feast would recognize that, wow, man, he's sitting right next to that guy. He must be pretty important. And when they see the two of them talking, wow, I wonder what they're talking about, right? It's in the back of their minds, everybody just must be like so jealous of my stature, my status and where I am and I've earned this and I've gotten to this place here, right? They want, they want honor, They had to be first in everything, and to not be first was an insult to their status, to their reputation that they built up in their minds. Number four, false religion takes takes advantage of others. Jesus said that these leaders, these scribes, devour widows' houses. It's a strong statement. What's he mean by that? Uh, In in this culture, the scribes were actually forbidden from taking any any money for their work. Uh, Instead, they lived off the support and, and the kindness of others. 
And support for, for them really wasn't difficult because to support a scribe in this, this elevated task, right, was, was something that was noble. That, that people were like, oh, I, I, I got to support this if I want God's blessing, right? And so the scribes recognized that the most easy targets for them for, to get their support were from those with limited means, the poor, those who had little, they would go after because then what could they do, right? They assure them of God's blessing if you support the work I am doing, right? Because, again, it's, it's so built up in their minds. You'll be important because of what you're doing. Give me what you have. And so Jesus says they're devouring widows. They're abusing them. They're taking advantage of, of the poor so their pockets would be lined, False religion just doesn't care about others. It cares only about self and the work that they're doing, right? My work is so important that I can abuse and roll over others because really what I'm doing trumps everyone else's job and who they are. I mean, how many religious leaders today go on TV wearing their $1,000 suits with cold cufflinks, flying around on private jets, but asking people to give more money, promising that the more that they give, the more God will bless them? It's evil. It's evil. It's false religion. It's abuse. And Jesus gives us this warning. They will receive the greater condemnation. Number five, false religion is devoid of any depth. It's devoid of any depth. The scribes loved long-winded prayers. Long-winded prayers, right? Go on and on with this, 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 this eloquent speech. But when you boil it down, it was empty. It was empty. And their actual lives revealed nothing of any depth of any truth. You see, false religions are really good at, at speaking charismatically and passionately and energetically, but when you examine, when you examine the words, the teaching, the doctrines themselves, what they actually are saying, there's nothing there of any substance. And, and it makes sense that there be no substance because the, their belief system, a false religion, a man religion, is not based on truth. Right? So when you have no truth inserted in it, then, then all you're left with is empty promises, empty phrases, empty words, no substance whatsoever. See, Jesus is more interested in us fumbling through our prayers with humility and with love than speaking eloquently and majestically to impress others. Right? That's so true. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to challenge us as a church. We've, we've been setting aside January to pray Right, to pray together. Now, typically, right, our, our, our times together as prayer as a church are very small, comparatively to the size of us as a church. And so here's where I want to challenge us. We've got to wrestle with why that is. You've got to wrestle with what, what, what is the hesitation, what's the pushback, what's the, I don't, I don't want to come and pray with other brothers and, and sisters. Now, again, this is not about guilt or manipulation whatsoever. This is about us really examining the heart. I, I firmly believe with every fiber of my being that if we as a church are going to be fruitful, if we're going to be impactful and influential in our community and among the nations, if we're going to stay um, on mission as a church and see people come into the faith and see baptism and see people uh, growing and, and, and producing fruit and multiplying, like we've got to pray. We've got to pray because we cannot do it ourselves. And my fear for us as a church is, are we too dependent on us? Are we too dependent on us? And is that why prayer sometimes is, come on, please, let's come pray. Right? Are we too dependent? This is where we got to wrestle. And you got to ask yourself, do, do I not come out of fear? 
fear of what others would say. I'm going to pray around other people. I'm going to fumble through my words. I'm not going to know what to say. And they're so much better prayers. I'm going to look foolish. And I want to say this again. Jesus is more interested in you fumbling through your prayers with humility than any, than, than any eloquent words you could say. Wrestle through that. Or, or maybe you have to wrestle through, do I not really have a, a, a robust and vibrant prayer life because I am dependent on me. I got things, everything's good. <laughs> got things taken care of. My, my family's in good shape. I'm, I've got a good job. Like everything's rolling. And, and again, this is where, this is a dangerous place for us to always be because that, that's man-centered. It, it's us. And, and so this is where we're going to move toward. What's it look like? To not only say we believe something, I think a majority of us in this room would say we believe prayer is vital and important. But again, this is where we're getting to when we get to the, the story of the poor widow. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to believe it. And so this is where we want to get, right? So, so hear my heart, right? As, as we push and challenge us, this is what God's word does. It shapes us, maybe makes us uncomfortable at times, but that's good. That's such a good thing. I need to be uncomfortable constantly so I'm more dependent on him and not myself. And so these religious leaders here, they, they just weren't after Jesus. They were not looking to submit to him as Lord. They weren't looking to submit to him as king because all of a sudden that meant submission, right? It meant giving up their lives, and they wanted to remain in control. Their religion was, was way more appealing to them because it, it, it garnered them attention from others. Everyone else had to submit to them, right? They were the big deal, right? And they didn't have to submit to anyone else or to sacrifice anything. But if you've been with us through this journey of Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus is desirous of our pursuit of him. That to follow Jesus means to lay down your life, means to die to yourself. It means to put others first, and then we find joy for our souls. And so it's here as Jesus looks at at everyone in the temple. He says, beware of these guys. Here's who I am, right? Come follow me. That that, that he he begins to kind of observe kind of just the the rituals taking place in regards to giving uh, within the temple. And and he notices this unlikely character who who gets it, who understands what it means to follow God, who understands the worth and the beauty of who God is, what it means to follow him with joy and delight Listen to the, the remaining verses of, of our text here this morning, verse 41. It says, he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting, putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It's here that Jesus now pulls his disciples aside. A, a group of guys, as, as you know, who, who missed the mark quite a bit, uh, who, who constantly are kind of not fully grasping what it truly means to follow Jesus, Right? That they're, they're learning. She's constantly having to pull them and like, okay, no, don't do this. It's not like this. It's like this. It's a group of guys who oftentimes want to look more like the religious leaders than this poor widow. It's a group of guys who did oftentimes crave recognition, right? We want to be acknowledged for who we are and who we're with. That, that sometimes craved acknowledgement. They wanted to be first, right? They fought with each other about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the, the first. And so Jesus is continually pulling them aside, like, no, guys, it's not like this. It's like this. He'd been, spent, spent much time teaching them, but it's here in the temple grounds here that he, he sees this poor widow, and he's like, there, right there. 
There, there it is. You see what she just did. Let me show you an example from an unlikely source of all I've been teaching you, all I've been showing you. See, it's here that Jesus calls them and us to recognize pure and undefiled religion. In James's letter, we see something similar. James says in James 1.27 that religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is, is this, to visit orphans and, and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And James was Jesus' half-brother and, and said that, listen, true, pure, undefiled religion, one that understands what it is to follow Christ, is one that, that is really empty of self. And it's, it's filled to the brim with love for God, like we saw last week, and love for neighbor as yourself. Remember, again, that false religion is, is all about yourself. It's all about, about me, what I can do. So if, if my heart is consumed with myself, I don't have any room for the poor. Right? I don't have any room for their needs and their hurts because I'm consumed with what I need. It's about me, my needs, my wants, my desires, but to be a person who cares for the needs of others, to serve them and put their needs ahead of yourself means that, that, that you are modeling and, and uh, emulating a heart that's full of love for God and love for neighbor, that it's not about you. It's about him and transfers and translates into love for, for others, those that are in need. You're putting them before you. And so he sees, again, this, this poor widow across the way come to the, the offering box, and she gives all that she had, which even that, it wasn't a lot, but she gave all that she had, barely a, a penny. And, and Jesus takes his disciples and says, you see that right there? Like, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. If you're going to follow me, right, I want everything. I want everything that you have, your whole person, heart, soul, mind, strength, your whole life. He says, this poor widow, she, she put in everything. Now, this isn't a, a necessarily a text on, on giving, but, but he uses this example of our giving even with this widow here to show what it means. This is what it means to, to follow him. He, he's drawing this comparison between the, the rich and, and the poor. And so he, he says the, the rich are giving out their abundance, mean, meaning that the, the rich typically we give out of our, our margins, meaning that once we take care of all the, the things we want to take care of in our lives first so that our lives continue to, to keep this pace of, of, of comfortableness and coziness and, and the life that we want, then we give what remains. That's what Jesus is saying, giving out of their abundance. And so he says so often in, in, in lives there's no real pain. There's no sacrifice. There's no cost in what we're, what we're doing. We, we don't take any less vacations. We don't go out to eat any less. There's nothing that really interferes or impacts our, our day-to-day lives. But we continue to, 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 to pat ourselves on the back because we did give. We're giving something, but, but nothing that would really deeply impact or affect us. That's what he's saying here with this, this widow. This is what Jesus means when he says that the, the rich, kind of, we give out of our abundance. But he says, do you see what she did? This poor widow gave out of her poverty. Like she, she already didn't have much, and yet she gave all of that away. Like she, she gave everything, and as one author states, that she was giving up what little control she had of her life. When, when the rest of us, so often when I, when I give, like I, I, I give only what I can afford to give without losing that control that I want over my life. Now, again, this isn't a text on giving. Extrapolate that to all of our life. We, we, we serve, but only enough that 
keeps us comfortable, like, right? Like it's, we, we control it. We want to maintain that manipulation or, or, or control over our lives. And Jesus, you see her, gave everything. She gave up the last little bit of the control she had. She gets it. Now, this isn't about what you give or, or don't give monetarily to the Lord. This is about a text on the heart and whether or not your heart is filled with Christ as Lord, as the one true Christ, or filled with you on the throne. The, the religious person wants to retain control. The, this widow was giving all of her life to God. She gave it all away. I mean, you know why, you know why Jesus so identifies? We see throughout the, the, the scriptures, Jesus identifies with the poor. God identifies with the poor. Why, why does Jesus so identify with the poor? Well, it's because he himself became poor. On the cross, Jesus was devoured. On the cross, Jesus was abused. On the cross, Jesus became weak. See, Jesus gave up control for us so that through faith in him and him alone, the one true Christ, the King, Lord of lords, that we would receive acceptance, salvation, right? The things that we, we crave, but we, we, we get from God through dying to ourselves. See, man-centered religion seeks acceptance from others. Jesus calls us to find acceptance in him. Because Jesus is accepted by God, we are as well. So, so the question before us this morning then is this. Are, are you following the one true Christ, or are you following self? In our lives, there are going to be ones which reflect one of these two characters in the text today. Either, either our life, your life will resemble the life of the scribes, where he says, beware of them. Or your life is going to resemble the life of this poor widow who gave everything, right? Who said, my life is yours. And as I close here this, this morning, I, I stumbled across this story this past week that I think just beautifully illustrates what it means to trust Christ and to follow Jesus with, with all of your life. It's a, it's a true story, and it's a story of a man named Blondin. He was a famous tightrope walker uh, from the mid-1950s. Uh, and the story goes like this. This is a true story, but in 1859, he, he stretched a rope across Niagara Falls, and he walked across it. Uh, Nearly 10,000 people showed up to watch him walk across Niagara Falls on nothing but a a tiny rope. Uh, Both Blondin and his manager were really excited by the the crowd size that that came out to watch him uh, walk across Niagara Falls that day. And so so he looks to his manager and says, Harry, man, let's, let's promise this crowd a stunt if they come back next week. And so Blondin looked to the crowd of 10,000 people and says, next week, come back and I'll do a stunt. So next week, the crowd came back, and it was bigger, and he went across, and he did a stunt. The, then he said, okay, come back again the following week. I'll do an even, even bigger stunt. And then the next week, there was even a the bigger crowd. And so the stunts that he was doing as he walked across his tightrope over Niagara Falls were crazy. Like one week, he, he walked across blindfolded. Uh, one week, he bicycled across. Uh, one week, he put a stove, a wood-burning stove, in a wheelbarrow. He took it out to the middle of the rope. He made himself an omelet, ate it, and then walked back. One time he stood on his head. One time he did somersaults across the rope. Toward the end of the summer, he was running out stunts, right? So he had this idea. He had this idea. He says, I have to do something to get the biggest crowd of all. So he came up with this idea that I'm going to carry someone across this rope on my back. Of course, that means 
two lives are at stake, right? But, but he's like, this will be really exciting. So, so they announced it, all right? Blondin's going to carry a man across Niagara Falls on his back, right? Drew the biggest crowd ever. Nearly 100,000 people showed up to watch this. But first, obviously, they'd, they'd find somebody that was willing to do this. So they advertised in the paper. They said they'll give $1,000. Remember, this is the 1850s, $1,000, a lot of money. They said, we'll give $1,000 to any man who's willing to come and be recruited to, to go on my back and I'll walk across this tightrope. Now, a lot of people showed up, right? A lot of people showed up for the recruitment trial. And, and so what they did, they looked at the crowd and they whittled it down to people that like, okay, I can actually carry this person. And so they had a, kind of a, a, a group of people that they said, this will work, right? So they, they, they brought um, the, this, this group of people that they whittled it down to, to the edge of Niagara Falls, right at the edge of where the rope was. And Blondin went out on the rope, again, to just show them, listen, I can do this, right? I can do it. He went across the rope. He carried a 200-pound sack. He did somersaults. All right? he, he, he made himself a stake, right? So he's doing all this. while well, Everybody's watching him do this. And so he, he, he did everything he could to prove that there was no problem with him accomplishing this feat. So he came back off the rope. He, he went down the line, went down the line of everybody that, that had said they want to be considered. And he asked everyone this, this question, one by one. He asked, do you believe without a doubt that I can carry you across this rope? And, and one after one, right, everyone said, yes, absolutely. I have no doubt whatsoever you can carry me across this, this rope. Then he went down the line and asked one more time. He said, will you let me carry you across the rope? And one after another, every single man said, not on your life. Not on your life. Every one of them said, no, I won't do it. Even though I know, I believe you can do it. I know you can do this. When, when it came to them putting their life on the line, they're like, ah, no, I'm, you're, I'm not giving you my life. And they all laughed. And so one author, I'll get to the story, how it closes here in a second here, but one author kind of says it this way. So our problem is not just the intellectual. It's like I said a little bit ago. Like most of us affirm truth about who God is, who Christ is, the importance of prayer, the importance of gathering to worship, we, we, we affirm that. He's like, but this author says, our problem is not just the intellectual. Our, our problem is, as human beings, is are we actually willing to give our life? Are we actually willing to put our life on the line for what we say we believe, which is what Jesus requires? Not us just knowing things about him, but saying, no, you can have my life because I trust you. So, so the story ends like this. Blondin after everybody said, not in your life, I ain't getting on your back. He turned to his manager, Harry, and said, Harry, it's going to have to be you. He's like, everybody showed up, 100,000 people. We have, we have to do this. So Harry was terrified, but he did it. He, he gets on Blondin's back. They begin to walk across this rope. Halfway across that day, as he had his manager on his back, they, they began to sway, began to sway. And so whenever Blondin would sway, Harry, who was on his, on his back or on his shoulders, would, would sway back to try and counterbalance, right? Like it's just a natural reflex. If you start to go this way, I'm going, I'm going this way. But that was causing them to sway even more. And so Blondin yelled to Harry and said, Harry, until I clear this place, you've got to become part of me. You've got to become part of me. He says, you've got to be part of my mind, my body, my soul. He says, if I sway, you, you've got to rest in me completely and you've got to sway completely with me. Right? He's like, don't, don't attempt to do the balancing yourself because if you do, we're both going off this line. We're going down to our death. 
So, so Blondin literally said this from the middle of the tightrope uh, over Niagara Falls to Harry. He says, Harry, if you try to save yourself, you're going to die. If you try to save yourself at all, you're going to lose. Uh, he said, you have to rest in me completely. Trust in me completely, right? They, they got across the line. Everybody's probably waiting, like, did they die? Nope, they got across the line, right? Jesus says the same thing, doesn't he? Right? That's what it means to follow the one true Christ, right? Rest in him, not yourself. If he sways, you sway with him. You rest, you go. This is what it means. He looks at this widow and says, she gets it. Everything. Everything is his. Is this where we are? Is this where you are? Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning thanking you that Christ is enough. Thanking that everything that we have heard said this morning from the call to worship to the songs that we've sung to our prayer of confession, assurance of grace, as we've read scripture out loud, as we've heard it, as we've sat underneath the teaching of Mark 12 here and the spirit is at work. Again, these are all things that I know for so many of us who even have a church background, we're like, yeah, I get it. I understand this. But, but Father, may we just take a moment to, to ask, though, but does my life reflect this? Does my life reflect that, yes, Christ is Lord in every domain? Not, not just giving, but of our time and resources and with our family and how we interact and love and serve our neighbors and, and, and what we do to serve and how we gather with the church and how we grow. Like, is every aspect of our life, would we say, matches up to what we affirm, we say we believe? And so, God, I, I know, because I know myself, this, this text has just, just beat me up this week uh, because I see all the areas where I fall short. And, and so I do not stand up here today saying, what, if you guys would just get together and be like me. No, it's, it's, it's all of us here saying we, we need God's mercy, we need his grace, we need to rest in the gospel no matter where we fall short, that we are, uh, we are loved, we are accepted, and may that continually then be the motivation then for pursuit of him. Would that, again, as we dwell upon the gospel, meditate upon the goodness of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ, that the beauty of who he is, may that stir within us this, this desire to say, you can have everything. All belongs to you. So maybe it's time to confess and repent, time to acknowledge, it's a time for the spirit to just work and, and bring things that sometimes are painful. Um, I don't like ever dealing with, with my sin because it's painful. It shows where I fail. But yet, where I fail, you have succeeded. You, you are enough. And so, God, may we, may we see you that way today. 